Thanks for tuning in. One of the things that makes a program like Outcasting possible is financial support from listeners like you. Please visit us at outcastingmedia.org and click on support to make your tax-deductible contribution. Thanks. We can respect religious liberty, but this is not to be a theocracy. We don't want religion entwined with government. We don't want particular faith beliefs to dominate over others. We're not where we should be if we want to really honor the the founding principle that there's freedom of religion, but also freedom from religion. So I say to young people, it's going to be on your shoulders to carry this fight forward. You need to advocate and organize and create the society that you want to live in. It is critical that young people pick up the banner and work towards society where these principles of, of liberty and freedom and justice for everyone really do shape the daily lives of the American family. That only becomes true if everybody does their part. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, where you don't have to be queer to be here. Outcasting is produced in New York by Media for the Public Good, online at outcastingmedia.org. Hi, I'm Chris. This is the 10th part of our in-depth conversation with Jennifer C. Pizer, a civil rights attorney at Lambda Legal, about how claims of religious liberty are being weaponized to justify discrimination against LGBTQ people. If you've missed any of the series, you can listen on our website, outcastingmedia.org. The interviews that have made up this series were recorded in August and September 2020. In this edition, we finish up those earlier interviews and begin a new interview with Jenny to bring us up to date on developments that have occurred since last summer. When we left off last time, Jenny and Outcaster Lucas were talking about the importance of youth activism in the movement for LGBTQ equality. They were also talking about the Equality Act, which has the support of President Biden and has passed in the House of Representatives, but faces an uncertain future in the Senate. That's where we pick up the conversation. Jenny, welcome back to Outcasting. Thanks, Lucas. It's great to be with you. To assume the worst for the moment, if the Equality Act isn't enacted, or if it's successfully challenged... Is LGBT equality going to be contested forever, as seems to be the case with abortion? Is it ever going to be settled law? Well, the answer to that question probably depends a lot on all of us. Issues come to be settled because we come to have a national consensus, and people who disagree decide there's no point in continuing to fight about it. You know, many, many, many generations ago, there was a view that had firm religious roots that People who were left-handed were uh, infected with demons. Uh, they were sinister. They were possessed uh, by evil spirits. You know, many, many, many generations later, we can laugh at that idea. But at the time, that meant that people whose internal makeup was such that they were left-handed were, you know, required to make their way through life in a way that did not feel so comfortable to them. I think that's an important parallel because. People are not still fighting about right-handedness and left-handedness, but we do still fight about race discrimination and sex discrimination. You know, abortion rights are just one part of equality for women, and that has remained a contentious issue in this country in part because lots of people didn't really want to engage with the question. They might have recognized that freedom of medical choices for women is an essential part of being able to manage your own life, and nobody else should be making moral judgments about 
how you live your life and what medical care you can have and your control over your own body. But because people haven't participated vigorously enough, that issue has continued to be terribly contentious. I think the same thing is true for LGBTQ equality. We've made enormous amounts of progress, and it certainly can become an issue that's as settled as right-handedness and left-handedness moving forward, and it should become settled that way. But other issues we have seen continue generation to generation because we didn't have enough people agreeing this really is a country of equality for all people that respects individual liberty and autonomy for each person to control her or his own life. If we really believe in those principles, we can put some of these contentious issues to bed. If people don't participate, then I'm afraid we don't have enough people really settling the question. So I I hope everybody listening thinks about this and decides to participate and gets us closer to the day when these issues of LGBTQ equality and freedom will not be contentious at all. They will just be something people read about in the history books. That participation is of great importance. I'm a teenager and I'm seeing all this, and I'm scared to see whether my freedoms are insured. How do you think that this argument surrounding religious liberty is affecting young people? Well, some of the public opinion research indicates actually that our country is becoming less religious, that some percentages are not attending religious services on the sa- with the same regularity as in past generations. But I think we are seeing some of the more extreme, more fundamentalist religions have been growing, even as some of the more mainstream faith traditions are dropping in, in membership. I think if we don't participate, if we don't speak up, that we can respect religious liberty, but this is not to be a theocracy. We don't want religion entwined with government. We don't want particular faith beliefs to dominate over others. That people should be able to run for office and be taken seriously without proclaiming what their faith identity may be. We're not where we should be if we want to really honor the the founding principle that there's freedom of religion, but also freedom from religion. So I say to young people, it's going to be on your shoulders to carry this fight forward. You need to advocate and organize and create the society that you want to live in. We have important founding documents that have critical principles that allow us to have a society that's free and equal, but those principles have never been fully vindicated. We've been on a path. It's not a straight line. We've had progress and then we've had regressive periods. In fact, just right now, we've been, in our view, in a very regressive period. It is critical that young people pick up the banner and work towards society where these principles of of liberty and freedom and justice for everyone really do shape the daily lives of the American family. That only becomes true if everybody does their part. And that sounds like a great place to leave it. Uh, Is there anything we haven't covered that you'd like to talk about? I guess as a final thought, I think it's wonderful and critical to see media made by young people about the issues that really matter, so that the ideas can be shared, the things that have been done right in the past, and the mistakes that have been made in the past become helpful guidance for the society that you want to build for the future. So thanks for 
the privilege of having this conversation with you. It's been really a pleasure, and your questions give me a lot of hope and faith that the future is going to be better than the present. As I mentioned, the interviews that have made up the series up till now were recorded last summer, and some important things have changed since then, having to do with the Supreme Court, the election, and a ton of new anti-LGBTQ bills in many states. Recently, Jenny Pizer joined Outcaster Isha to bring us up to date. Jenny, thanks for joining us again on Outcasting. Oh, it's my pleasure to be back with you. Let's start with the Supreme Court. Last fall, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg died and the Trump administration and Senate Republicans rushed to confirm Amy Coney Barrett, a self-described religious conservative, to take her place. First, tell us about how the Senate refused to consider President Obama's nomination of Merrick Garland to the court after the death in 2016 of Justice Antonin Scalia. Yeah, well, Justice Antonin Scalia, who'd been a long-serving justice on the Supreme Court, died suddenly uh, in the early months of 2016, and there was quite a long period between his passing away and the election that fall in November. But Senate Republicans, led by Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, took the position that it was an election year and that whoever won the election should have the opportunity to nominate Justice Scalia's successor. Now, there was plenty of time uh, for the Senate to do the job of holding hearings on uh, Merrick Garland, Judge Garland. He had been the senior judge on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeal, widely respected and a moderate judge. But uh, Leader McConnell took the position that this was a matter that a nomination that should be in the hands of the next president. And there was a lot of outcry about that position. That is not a typical position. Lambda Legal did quite a bit of public education, not just about this unusual delay and really unjustified delay, but about the fact that it the court does not function as well when it only has eight justices because it can divide evenly in a way that means you don't have precedent on the important issues in front of the court. But uh, Leader McConnell held to that position, and the result of the election, of course, was that uh, Donald Trump became the next president, and he did not select Judge Garland, and instead nominated Neil Gorsuch, who became Justice Gorsuch. Because Justice Scalia was very conservative in his views, Judge Gorsuch, who then became Justice Gorsuch, was not seen as dramatically tilting the balance of the court. Uh, So many of us considered this to have been an inappropriate delay, but not one that uh, made a big difference in the makeup of the court. As we will discuss, um, that did not continue to be true. And yet, not eight months before an election, but just a few weeks, Senate Republicans rushed to confirmation of Justice Barrett. How can those things be squared? They really can't be squared. (laughs) They could be squared in terms of exercise of political power, but not in terms of principle. It was shocking, perhaps, but maybe not that surprising, that Leader McConnell took the opposite position after the passing of Justice Ginsburg, when they were just a couple of weeks before the election, and instead of holding to the position that he had so vigorously espoused after the passing of uh, Justice Scalia, the hearings and the vote on the nomination of Judge Amy Coney Barrett, it was whiplash fast. There was enormous opposition 
to that nomination, and uh, Mitch McConnell did not care. And Judge Barrett is now Justice Barrett. What does this mean for the balance of power in the Supreme Court? Well, what it means is that Justice Gorsuch's seat did not make a big change in the balance. But having Justice Ginsburg replaced by Justice Barrett does make a big difference. The two of them are opposites in their jurisprudence. And maybe more so if you think about it this way, we've gone from an evenly divided court to a court with six very conservative jurists. I mean, we talk now about Chief Justice John Roberts as being a swing vote, but a couple of years ago, nobody would have considered him a swing. The court now is significantly more conservative, even reactionary, than it's been in any of our lifetimes. And that really makes a difference for the American people because the Supreme Court is supposed to be the enforcer of basic constitutional rights that we all have as Americans and protection against majoritarian excesses of Congress or state legislatures. So if you have a Supreme Court that is moved so much in, in a conservative or even reactionary direction, then we can't necessarily depend on that court to protect our individual rights and minority rights. It's a very serious change. Does it matter that there's this difference between the political balance among the American public and the political balance in the Supreme Court? It does matter. The Supreme Court has an enormous amount of power. It's nine human beings with their own views of the Constitution, their own jurisprudence. And if five members of that court agree, that becomes the law for the whole country. Right now, we have a Supreme Court that is considerably more to the right than the American public. The American public is very divided about many things, but there is strong public support for many of our basic individual freedoms and the right of people to be protected from the government and from abusive uses of legislative power. So we'll have to see how this unfolds because right now we have a court with six justices who have spent their careers, uh, including time as judges, developing very conservative interpretations of the law interpretations that are considerably out of step with the majority of the American public. And so if they issue lots of decisions enforcing or, or applying those views to our lives as Americans, we may well see public reaction against that, which could take many different forms. Uh, and I you know, won't try to predict them all now. I don't have a good crystal ball about these things really, but there, there's likely to be a tension um, we may see it about reproductive rights. We're likely to see it about civil rights. Uh, we're like to, likely to see it about a range of different things. This has happened in American history before, but it was quite a while ago, really about 100 years ago, uh, that this happened. So there really is a tension between the actions of the court if they get too far out of step with where the American public is. It's often said that the court's do their work with the consent of the governed. And if we don't consent, if too many of us really object, then there can be a real pushback. And we're seeing some of that start to emerge now. 
If it happened, what would that pushback look like? Well, we're seeing conversation now about whether it's appropriate to expand the number of justices from nine, perhaps to 11, perhaps to 13. Some of these conversations have become fairly serious because many people feel that a couple of those Supreme Court seats were stolen, (laughs) that Judge Garland should have been Justice Garland, and that Amy Coney Barrett's nomination should not have been rushed through. So there's a feeling that the current makeup of the court is to be questioned. And one answer to that is to expand the size of the court. The Constitution does not say the Supreme Court is to be made up of nine justices. And in the past, that number has fluctuated. It has been nine for quite some time. But in the earlier days of our country, it was seven, it was 10, it went up and down of you know, a number of times. So that's perfectly legitimate to do politically. And there are some serious conversations going on about that. There also are conversations going on about lifetime tenure, because many generations ago when our country was was young, most people didn't live quite as long as they do today. We have wonders of modern medicine and other things. And so lifetime tenure now tends to be a lot longer than it was in the past. And when people have these roles, they tend to do them for a long time. So there's less turnover. And that plus the political polarization that we have uh, had in recent years means that these nomination fights and these confirmation fights are uh, have an intensity about them that many people are questioning whether this is really a good way to be running the government. It it really has become politicized in a way that uh, was not always the case. So maybe the court might get bigger. Maybe we might move away from lifetime tenure. There are quite a few proposals that are being debated these days, and um, we'll have to wait and see. But I think The members of the Supreme Court are certainly aware of this conversation, and the Chief Justice, Chief Justice John Roberts, himself quite a conservative jurist, but he's shown himself to be concerned with public view of the court, whether the court is seen as a body of jurists that are really interpreting the law in a legally sound way or just another political branch. He clearly does not want the Supreme Court to be seen as just another political branch where the outcome of cases is predicted based on the political party of the president who nominated particular justices. That's not the way the court was supposed to operate. So we're having conversations today, perhaps much like the conversations that took place about 100 years ago when the Supreme Court was very, very conservative, and the court kept striking down uh, laws passed, the New Deal legislation designed to help pull the country uh, out of the depression and move forward. There are some echoes of that past that we're hearing today as we as we see the operation of this court. History does not always predict the future, of course, but there was there was discussion about expanding the Supreme Court then, and that conversation seemed to get through as a message, and the court stopped striking down those laws. We might see something like that uh, happen again today, but time will tell. We'll have to just watch and see. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, produced in New York by Media for the Public Good online at outcastingmedia.org. We're talking about what happens when people claim that their religious liberty 
entitles them to discriminate against LGBTQ people in ways that wouldn't be acceptable if the discrimination were against other minorities. Speaking with Outcaster Isha is our guest, Jenny Pizer, the Senior Counsel and Director of Law and Policy for Lambda Legal, the country's oldest and largest legal organization seeking full recognition of the civil rights of LGBT people and everyone living with HIV. We've been talking about liberal justices and conservative justices, but we're talking about more than just politics and voting for candidates of one party or another. When there are confirmation hearings for new justices, we hear phrases like strict interpretation of the Constitution. Can you tell us about that? Well, there are different philosophies of of how to understand our Constitution or any Constitution And that compares with how we interpret or apply a law or a statute. And sometimes people will talk about the same legal questions from very different perspectives. This is what I mean. When we talk about the Constitution, that's a document that is not very long, and it sets out the framework of how our government is supposed to operate. And it uses certain types of phrases to describe, for example, the job that Congress is supposed to do, or the role of the courts, how the different branches are supposed to interact with each other. And then we have the Bill of Rights, which sets out these very important individual freedoms and the rights of minority groups to be protected against majoritarian excess. Some people talk about the Constitution as a living document, by which they mean our society grows and changes over time. And words that were put on the page a couple of hundred years ago to capture an idea have to be interpreted so we understand what that idea means in our lives today. I mean, for example, we can talk about freedom of speech and freedom of the press, but of course the internet didn't exist. So we have to understand what freedom of the press, what was that concept? What was that idea back in the late 1700s? And how do we respect and enforce that idea in our modern world today? Sometimes we talk about this as the difference between the the concept, the idea, and the conception, the specific application of that idea. And that's part of what makes constitutional law so interesting, so so fun, so creative, and also an area that's fertile for disagreement about how you get from the concept to the specific conception. Now, some of the what people will refer to sometimes as, as conservative jurists will say, well, you put yourself in the buckled shoes and the three-cornered hat of the men, and of course they were all men, who wrote the Constitution, what did they have in mind when they put pen to paper? And that's the confines of what we should do today. Now, some of us say, well, but they had slavery and women had no rights and we didn't have the internet. Well, we didn't have cars. We didn't have so many things. If if we limit our understanding of the Constitution and our rights to what people would have thought in 1792, then, gosh, we could still have slavery and women would still have no rights. And LGBT people, of course, would have no rights either. So to some of us, the idea of cabining our understanding of rights to a couple centuries ago really makes no sense. And the founders themselves knew the difference between a constitution and laws. They set up the Congress to write laws. But that's 
one way of understanding the tension between an approach that says, you know, the Constitution was written to be a blueprint to fulfill these ideals of liberty and equality at a time when not everybody had liberty and equality. And it was designed to get us from that late 1700s way of living to move forward and create a new kind of country that was dedicated to these ideas of liberty and equality and freedom of other kinds to move forward in time and create this new society. We are seeing today the tension between these two approaches because some of the conservative jurists on the Supreme Court are quite explicit in disagreeing with the development of the law, the development of constitutional law that, for example, is insisting or has insisted on equal rights for women and equal rights for same-sex couples in terms of marriage equality, for example. They disagree quite vehemently with that and will hearken back to writings and ideas of the founders. You know, we have many arguments between these, these two approaches to what is a constitution for and how should we go about trying to be faithful to what the founders were setting up uh, in terms of important principles and, and in terms of who should have rights and what should those rights be? So is it safe to say that the living document approach loosely, or maybe not loosely, correlates with what we think of as liberal justices, and the original intent approach correlates with what we think of conservative justices on the court? Yeah, that really captures the gist of the tension here. To be clear, there are variations. There are some, like Justice Scalia, who described himself as an originalist, and there are other judges and justices who will talk about original intent, but they don't always agree with what the original intent was. They have a range of views about what the original intent was. And those who talk about the living document and a a more liberal interpretation they generally say that they are being faithful to the original ideas too. They just understand the original ideas differently. So it really is a struggle between whether a particular jurist is limiting the understanding of rights to people who had those rights back in the beginning, or whether a jurist understands the equality principle, and in particular, the equality principle that was recognized explicitly in the amendments and the 14th Amendment in particular that was adopted after the Civil War, to say explicitly, no, when we talk about the rights that are protected by the Constitution, we mean those same rights for everyone, even though that is not how our society operated back at the founding of the country. It needs to operate that way now. So generally, yes, you've got it exactly right. Let's just keep in mind that we don't just have two camps of people who um, have a particular view. There's actually quite a bit of variation in philosophy under those two terms. That's all the time we have, so let's continue the conversation next time. Thanks, Jenny. Thanks so much. Great to be with you. That's it for this 10th part of our series on the conflict between equality for LGBTQ people and those who cite religious liberty to justify discriminating against us. If you've missed any part of this series, it's available on our website, outcastingmedia.org. This program has been produced by the Outcasting team. 
including youth participants Lucas, Sarah, Lil, Justin, Brian, and me, Chris. Our executive producer is Mark Sofis. Outcasting is produced in New York by Media for the Public Good. More information is available at outcastingmedia.org. You'll find information about the show, listen links for all Outcasting content, and the podcast link. You can also find Outcasting on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audible, Pocket Casts, Radio Public, and other major podcast platforms. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. If you're having trouble, whether it's at home or school, or just with yourself, call the Trevor Project hotline at 866-488-7386 or visit them online at thetrevorproject.org. The Trevor Project is an organization dedicated to LGBTQ youth suicide prevention. Call them if you have a problem. Seriously, don't be scared. They even have an online chat you can use if you don't want to talk on the phone. Being different isn't a reason to hate or hurt yourself. All right, go get a piece of paper. I'll say it one more time. 866-488-7386 or online at thetrevorproject.org. You can also find a link on our site, outcastingmedia.org, under Outcasting, LGBTQ Resources. I'm Chris. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this edition of Outcasting, please make your tax-deductible contribution today. We can't do programs like this without your support. To make your donation, please visit us at outcastingmedia.org and click on Support. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. Thanks.